From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's time for our annual storytelling special, and this year the theme is community. We'll hear tales of the different ways we come together, including life in a boys' club in South Africa, where the rules were few yet effective. Life on that beach was easy. We lived in swimsuits and hats, and we felt very comfortable there, as though we fitted into a gap in the ecology, a niche waiting for us to arrive in this powerful and provident place. That is what pulled us together. And in the days that followed, we created a simple set of tribal rules. One, no girls. Two, no boys under nine or over 12. And three, everything that happened at the hut was to be a secret, divulged only on pain of death. A band of boys in the wild and more as we tell stories on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios, this is the Living on Earth Holiday Storytelling Special. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's that time of year when many of us feel a need to reconnect with our communities, whether it's taking a stroll down Main Street or catching up with a neighbor over a warm mug of cocoa. Community isn't just the place that surrounds us, but what we make of that place. And stories handed down for generations are what keep a community alive. So this week we're taking some time away from the news to tell stories, stories of communities and the people who hold them together. So pull up a chair, put up your feet, and for the next hour you'll be part of our own little radio community as we hear from three writers with stories of three very different communities. Lyle Watson is a writer based in West Cork, Ireland. He's author of the book Elephantums, Tracking the Elephant, and will share a story about a boys' club in South Africa that was a rite of passage for unruly lads. Hello, Lyle. Steve, hi. Also joining me is Jake Halpern, author of the book Braving Home, Dispatches from the Underwater Town, the Lava Side Inn, and other extreme locales. He'll be taking us to the remote outpost community of Whittier, Alaska, where despite unusually close proximity, its residents barely interact with each other and like to keep it that way. Jake, hello. Hi, Steve. Finally, Judy Blunt teaches English at the University of Montana at Missoula. Her memoir about life on the open plains of Montana is called Breaking Clean. Judy, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here, and I'd like to start with you, Judy. You write about how important the tradition of storytelling has been to your community in rural Montana. And before you tell us your story, I'm curious, how much did this storytelling culture shape your career? Um, I think it had everything to do with my decision to eventually write, because that's the next step of storytelling. Um, I was raised in a very oral community. We we did lots of storytelling, not very much television, lots of card playing, lots of just keeping track of one another by virtue of stories. All right. Well, I want you to help us keep track of that history of, of yours right now by telling us a story. Could you please tell your story for us now? Sure. Where I grew up, no daily paper shifted our view of the world and television didn't intrude until the mid-60s. Radio broadcasts from Haver, Montana, bounced off the Little Rockies and gave all we desired of the outside. Market reports, weather forecasts, and a little Patsy Cline. When the roads were decent, come Saturday we had mail. Dry summer days, I climbed the windbreak afternoon to watch for a mare's tail of dust snaking south along the county road, a gray stream that hung for miles on a quiet day, 
and at the last possible second exploded and rose like a mushroom as the mailman slid to a stop. Ours was one of twenty-some families scattered like islands on a hundred square miles of prairie, farm and ranch folks loosely connected by crank telephones and narrow ribbons of gumbo road. Most of the neighbors I knew were sons and daughters of farmers, second-generation distilled from turn-of-the-century homesteaders who stuck it out. They say only one in ten made the first decade. Of those who stayed, some started out as Russians, Germans, Norwegians, or Swedes, first-generation immigrants. Others came from some direction, up from the south, down from Canada, all of them bearing the sound and taste of other worlds. The prairie they settled made marginal farmland, and with extended families left behind, they were forced to depend upon community. No one worked a homestead alone. To stay required common focus and collective effort, a sharing of labor, machinery, and knowledge. By the time their children took over, expanding the original claims and jerking the plow line from a tractor seat instead of behind a team of horses, families could no longer be sorted by nationality, religion, or expectation. Parents still spoke with accents, told stories of city life, of ocean crossings and fox hunts, sleigh rides and homemade skis, of the way dumplings were made in the old country. But their children, my parents' generation, were born on the land and born to the land, and they all told the same stories of schoolhouse dances and county fairs or runaway teams and hoppers and dry wells. Theirs was an intimacy born of isolation rather than blood relation. Word from the outside, whether it arrived in a mail sack or a news report, seldom overshadowed the facts of our lives. We talked in facts, work and weather, the logistics of this fence and that field, but stories were how we spoke. A good story rose to the surface of conversation like heavy cream, a thing to be savored and served artfully. Stored in dry wit, wrapped in dark humor, tied together with strings of anecdotes, these stories told the chronology of a family, the history of a piece of land, the hardships of a certain year or span of years, a series of events that led without pause to the present. If the stories were recent, they filtered through the door of my room late at night, voices hushed around the kitchen table as they sorted out this day and held it against others, their laughter sharp and sad and slow to come. Time was the key. Remembered the time, and something in the air caught like a whisper. Back when? Back before a summer too fresh and real to talk about. A year's work stripped in a twenty-minute hailstorm. A man's right hand mangled in the belts of a combine, first day of harvest. An only son buried alive in a grain bin, suffocated in a red avalanche of wheat. Only time softened these facts into stories. The boy's death became a tragic lesson. The doors to the wheat bins by the shop were never chained shut, but in the years that followed, my father never missed a chance to remind us how grain slopes up the sides, how just bumping the wall can cause wheat to shift and pour down around you, pinning your feet in seconds. My father's mangled hand became a story of a wild ride to town and a doctor who administered morphine, 
but not until he had identified the exposed nerves by twanging each one with forceps. Stories are the lessons of a year, or a decade, or a life broken into chunks you can swallow. But the heart of a story lies in the act of telling, the passing on. Listening to stories, I learned what was worth saying and what need not be spoken aloud. I learned how we remember, and whom we remembered, and why. How facts are shaped, or colored, or forgotten. Few facts of my childhood remain. No one recalls my first words or when I spoke them. The patter of my first steps is lost in a blur of siblings who ran before or crawled after. What survives are the milestones, my family's oral history of near hits and close calls, stories of five children and our first steps into an adult landscape that made small allowance for age or ignorance. The first story about me goes like this. The summer Judy was four, she trotted into the kitchen so full of importance she could have popped her with a pin. We had company, but she was holding something, and I looked over to see what she dragged in. She had one of those big round cocklebers. She stepped up to the table with it cupped in both hands. A cactus just calved, she says, and holds it up the baby to show it off. I saw the whole thing. It's hard telling what I've actually seen that day perhaps a simple trick of wind and weeds, but by day's end I have seen the eyes around a table light up with genuine respect for wit, for the art of timing, the deadpan delivery. My parents look right at me and smile. That smile is not about innocence. By age four I had witnessed a wide range of barnyard conceptions and deliveries. Cats had cats and cows had cows, and I knew why. What do they see in my yarn about a cactus calving a cocklebur that makes it worth keeping and telling over and over? I believe the truth is this. The summer I was four, I spoke my first good story and was born into my community, into the collective memory of my family, into a mythology that grew more real to me than fact. For the balance of my childhood, I danced and waved on the fringe of a world defined by its miracles and natural disasters observing and imitating, trying to amount to a good story, or barring that, to tell one. We see where you uh, started in the image business, Judy, huh? <laughs> That's what stories are all about. So I, I gather you moved away um, when you went off to the university, but your parents are still on the original ranch there. Yeah, I um, I married into that community, actually. I was there until I was 33 years old, and uh, my children went to the same one-room country school I did for a few years before I left. Huh. Now, has the close-knit nature of this community changed uh, since you moved away? The area itself, of course, it's taken almost 100 years to undo the Homestead Act, and the land is reclaiming its uh, boundaries a little more each year. 
it's very marginal land, and so at this point it's depopulated fewer than uh, about a third or to a half of the number of people who lived there when I was, was growing up remain, um, and they tend to be older. It's a, it's a land in transition. Well, we're here all listening to your story, uh, Jake and Lyle and, and I. And um, Jake, when you travel around for the stories of the communities that you've been into, does this fit into the pattern that you see? Or Yeah, I think it does. I mean, in, in my book, I visit some very kind of hard-living places, an erupting volcano, a floodplain, a fire corridor. And one of the things that was struck me that Judy was saying, you know, that this area has kind of been depopulated and there's just a handful of people that remain I think the decision to stay, the singular decision that better or for worse, this is where I'm from and this is where I'm going to stay, is itself something that brings people together. Because if they have nothing else in common, they at least have in common that decision, that rooted in stubbornness or whatever it is, that this is my home and I'm staying here. And there's kind of a sense of you know, brotherhood or community that, that forms out of that stubbornness. Almost a common defensiveness uh, mm. in a sense. They have to defend their own choice to stay sometimes because uh, people will point out the absence of common sense occasionally. Mm -hmm. And And Lyle? It reminded me very much of African storytelling and a tribal association almost. It's a place obviously with with long memories, with deep roots. It's the kind of place you can't recreate. You can't make up in just a generation or two. I loved the way that uh, Judy's voice changed at the moment she talked about her own story. It was a Quite different tone, and uh, it was it was sweet. Now, you were that was your mother recalls a story. I'm yeah, that would be probably my mother's voice in my head, anyway. Judy Blunt, thanks for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. We'll be back with a story from the frozen north in just a moment. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Welcome back. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week, we're celebrating the holiday season with stories of community with writers Judy Blunt, Lyle Watson, and Jake Halpern. Jake, the community you're about to tell us about is not your average Main Street central sort of town. Uh, How did you first hear of Whittier, Alaska, anyway? You know, I was working at a magazine, and someone had told me um, that they'd heard a story about a town in Alaska that was in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness, and the whole town existed in one building. And the building got cut off from the world by avalanches and, you know, annual 20 feet of snow. And it, it sounded, you know, implausible. It sounded like a science fiction set. And, um, and my curiosity was piqued. So off you went. And I gather one of the people that you meet in your story about this town is a woman named Babs Reynolds. And she's one of the few who, I guess, have stuck it out in this remote outpost for many years. And for this segment of the show, we've asked her to listen in to your story from her home in Whittier. Babs, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Well, welcome. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, Jake. Now the uh, the storytelling circle here is yours. Can you read your story for us now? Sure. As I read back Babs' lines, I hope that uh, I do your, your voice justice, Babs. All right, we'll start here. Reportedly, somewhere in the remote coves of Prince William Sound, there was a 14-story high-rise nestled among the glaciers. This single, snowbound building was the city of Whittier, Alaska. Perhaps what intrigued me most, however, was Whittier's lone entranceway, a a two-and-a-half-mile-long railroad tunnel that burrowed beneath the surrounding wall of mountains and brought a train into town several times a week. Recently, the state of Alaska had modified the tunnel to install an accompanying road for cars and buses. People in Whittier were miffed. From what I read in the Anchorage Daily News, most residents treasured their fortified isolation. 
They didn't want the road, and a few, including an outspoken diehard named Babs Reynolds, promised to fight it to the bitter end. Whittier owed its existence to the United States military, which initially conceived it as a fortified seaport. Anchorage traditionally relied on port towns like Seward for its shipping. Yet as World War II began, the military insisted on a closer and more secure port for its operations. In August of 1941, engineers began drilling a two-and-a-half-mile hole through the mountains to a narrow shelf of rock on the other side, which they called Whittier. The name came from the Quaker poet John Greenleaf Whittier, whose poems often describe the rugged beauty of the seasons, including the awesome power of winter. In 1956, the military completed a 14-story high-rise that qualified as the tallest building in Alaska. The Pentagon hoped that Whittier would be not just a secure port, but also a lookout onto the Soviet Union, which sat just a few hundred miles to the west. Yet, just a few short years later, the entire project was abandoned. Ultimately, Whittier was left to a handful of civilians who called it home. According to the 2000 census, precisely 182 people now lived in the city of Whittier, and I wanted to know more about them. Naturally, I was curious about Whittier's avalanches and its harsh, wintry environs, but this was just part of it. Whittier promised to offer something new, not just the story of man versus the great outdoors, but also of man versus the great indoors. After flying to Anchorage, I hired a reluctant taxi driver who navigated me across a series of snow-covered mountains and through the two-and-a-half-mile-long tunnel that led to the giant tower that was Whittier, where I planned to spend the next two weeks. The first-floor hallway is the center of daily life in Whittier, the equivalent of Main Street in a normal town. Along this vast, windowless stretch, I found a series of rooms containing the post office, the laundromat, the general store, the weather station, city hall, police headquarters, and a shop called Cabin Fever. At both ends of the building, there were elevators leading to the residential floors above. By the time I arrived, the first-floor hallway had shut down for the night, and there was hardly a person in sight. Eventually, I wandered into Cabin Fever, which occupied a very cramped one-bedroom apartment at the far end of the hallway and functioned as the town's video store and tanning salon. It was here that I met Babs Reynolds. Babs was sitting in a walk-in closet outfitted with a small desk and a wraparound bookcase with several hundred movies, including a great many horror and action flicks. She was of medium height and buxom, a hardy woman in her early 60s whose face was daubed with makeup and whose skin was deeply bronzed from the generous use of liquid tanner. Her clothes were all denim. Between her breasts rested a lone ornament, a small leather holster for her lighter, which hung as a necklace on a piece of rawhide. We exchanged pleasantries for a few minutes, during which time she used her necklace to light a long, brown menthol cigarette that resembled a small cigar. "'So what do you think of Whittier?' she asked me finally, in a deep, throaty drawl. "'Well, when I first came to the tunnel, I was a little spooked out,' I admitted. "'Yeah, well, who wouldn't be?' said Babs with a laugh." She reached into the desk drawer and pulled out a deck of cards and began dealing herself a round of solitaire, which she played effortlessly as if for the ten-thousandth time. "'When I first got here, I couldn't believe it either,' she said, without looking up. "'Well, did you think of turning around?' I asked. "'Not for a moment,' replied Babs. "'Well, I had an ex-husband on the other side who was trying to kill me.' Neither of us spoke for a moment. Babs glanced up at a small TV that was hanging from the ceiling, and as she did this I noticed several scars on her chin. Before she came to Whittier, her ex-husband used to beat her, and on one occasion he broke her jaw, and the scars marked the places where a doctor had drilled several magnesium bolts into her mandible and connected them to a fiberglass brace. 
Upon arriving in Whittier in the summer of 1978, Babb showed a picture of her third husband to the train crew and explained that he was out to kill her. Back then, the train was the only way into Whittier, and the train crew controlled who got in and who got out, said Babs. So I told them my situation, and they told me not to worry. In the coming years, the crew made good on its promise, never once letting Babs' husband aboard an incoming train. I chatted with Babs until closing time, and as she locked up cabin fever for the night, I asked if I could help out with her newspaper route the following day. Sure, that'd be nice, said Babs. Be downstairs at 9 o'clock tomorrow, and we'll head over to the tunnel to pick up the papers. And if you're lucky, I'll make you breakfast afterwards. From cabin fever, I headed upstairs to the local B&B where I'd made reservations, quite unnecessarily, as it turns out, for I was the only guest. I rode the elevator to the ninth floor where I met Kathy Elliott, a timid, white-haired woman who helped run the B&B. "'How's the weather outside?' she asked. "'Oh, cold,' I told her. "'Oh, I'm sure it is,' said Kathy, who went on to explain that she had left the high-rise in weeks. "'I like going outside, but it drains you,' said Kathy. "'When you come back indoors to a man-made situation, you have to acclimate.' I guess it's something like what the astronauts go through. So you just stay inside for weeks at a time, I asked. Oh, I've stayed inside for months at a time, explained Kathy. In the wintertime, I hibernate like an old bear. I took my key and proceeded to the 14th floor where the B&B was located. The elevator doors opened onto the building's many long linoleum quarters. The inside of the high-rise was a hybrid of several institutional styles of architecture, part 1950s college dormitory, part aging mental institution, and part nuclear fallout shelter, the effect of which was immediately confining and at times creepy. The tower has two major joints or gaps that allow the structure to flex properly in the event of an earthquake. The practical effect, however, was that of a massive wind vent causing the entire building to creak and groan through the night. Sometimes, one resident told me, in the middle of the night you'll sit up in bed and ask yourself, what do I hear? And the answer is nothing. The wind has finally stopped and the silence is enough to wake you. After a restless first night of sleep, I met Babs at 9 a.m. the following morning to help out with the newspapers. She drove her weather-beaten pickup truck out towards the tunnel, and together we struggled to see through the steadily falling snow. So how's this road working out, I asked finally. Well, it's here, so we use it, said Babs. But right until that first car came through, I had to believe it wasn't going to open. Babs dug into the depths of her winter coat, pulled out her necklace lighter, and lit another of her menthols. You gotta understand, I came here over 20 years ago running for my life. Coming here, I found safety in some of the most beautiful country you'll ever see. And I wasn't the only one. A lot of people came here running from something. This is something I would hear again and again in Whittier. People came through the tunnel on the run from a whole gamut of troubles. Ex-husbands, ex-wives, parents, jobs, warrants, child support, God, or just perhaps themselves. Alaska was as far away as they could go and still speak English, and Whittier was a good safe leap beyond that. Babs popped open the driver's side door and stepped out into a powdery patch of knee-deep snow. I'm going to check and see if the tunnel crew already dropped off the papers, she told me. I followed her through the snow to a partially submerged phone booth. I helped her pry open the door, and inside we found several dozen copies of the Anchorage Daily News. We carried the newspapers back to Babs' truck. By now the wind was really howling, and both of us hurried into the front seat. The way I see it, this road was done to us, not for us, concluded Babs. They brought us the world. Hell, we could have had the world if we wanted it, but we didn't. That's why we all ended up here. Two other reasons for Babs not to go anywhere were her younger sisters, Brenda and Carolyn, both of whom had followed her to Whittier. Carolyn Ray Casabier, the middle sister, was a lifelong wanderer who rarely stayed anywhere for more than a year at a time. 
She had moved to Whittier five different times and was currently living in an apartment on the tenth floor of the high-rise, which was furnished with a few Spartan items, including a wooden box with an open plane ticket in it. Brenda Tolman, the younger sister, arrived in 1982 and had been in Whittier ever since. Brenda was a professional artist. She had a studio on the first floor of the high-rise, but she lived next door to Babs in the Whittier Manor, a small, snow-entrenched bungalow next to the tower. Despite the fact that Brenda and Babs lived next door to one another and relied on each other to do everything from running the weather station to lassoing runaway reindeer, Babs told me that they once went for two years without talking. Well, we used to pass in the hallway or ride up the same elevator without even looking up, she explained. It was like we didn't exist for one another. In addition to being somewhat standoffish, the two were highly competitive, not just for my attention, but for the intention of the entire town, it seemed. Carolyn, the middle sister, explained this best. My sisters are like celebrities around here, she told me when I visited her on the 11th floor apartment. I mean, sometimes you'd think they'd stop world hunger or something, she added with a laugh. How much longer are you going to be in Whittier, I asked. I have absolutely no idea, she told me. Everything here is so simple and secure, and when I left in the past, I thought, what have I done? Suddenly, I had to start carrying a wallet again. I had to worry about rent, utilities, job, everything. For me, that's the real world. I need that. But what do I know? Maybe this is really paradise, and I'm just too much of a damn fool to see it. On the morning of my departure, Babs offered to drive me to the airport. Around 10 a.m., we set out in her pickup truck, driving south along the snow-covered bends of Portage Valley, through a forest of trees whose branches were hung with long, delicate icicles that fell and shattered like champagne glasses whenever the wind blew. We took the Seward Highway into Anchorage and, just to kill a bit of time, drove down 4th Avenue past the honky-tonks where Babs once tended bar. "'Not much left here,' she muttered as we sped down 4th Avenue so quickly it was impossible for me to see much of anything. About half an hour later, we pulled into the airport. "'I'm not big on goodbye,' she said. "'But you know where to find me if you ever want to come back.' Bab slammed on the brake, stopping just long enough for me to plant both feet on the curb, and then she was gone. It's a great story, Jay. Thanks so much. And we do have Babs Rental here on the line with us right now. Babs, what did you think of Whittier when you first came through that tunnel? The first time I came through the tunnel, I was running for my life. And when you find something secure, everything looks better. Okay. And you, you have to put everything into a positive mode. And it was absolutely beautiful here. And I was free to go out and walk around on the street or do anything I wanted to. And so my first thought coming into town was, wow, this has got to be the greatest place in the world. Well, what kind of person comes to Whittier and stays, Babs? Well, I don't know if they're really stupid or if they've just got a lot of guts and they want to do something really different, <laughs> you know, or if they're forced into it. I was pretty much forced into it and made the best of a bad situation, obviously. I'd lived in Anchorage for quite a while. I knew lots of people on that side. I had quite a social life over there, you know, having been in the bar business and stuff. And it was just totally different coming over here. It was like opening up one door after you'd closed another one. Hmm. I just want to add that there are other people, obviously, besides Babs and Whittier. And the reason I think I was drawn to her to write about her is because through her kind of extraordinary willpower, she's made Whittier 
a homey place for herself. Her apartment is in incredibly welcoming. The video store and tanning salon that she set up is, you know, one of the few places where people interact. The same goes for the burger stand that she created. And what impressed me about Babs was that, to my mind, in a very kind of inhospitable place, she had really worked hard to carve out a, a nice home for herself. Yeah, I mean, it would occur to me that uh, this isn't a place that would ordinarily attract a lot of gregarious people, that they go off to the end of the planet so they could be by themselves and want to keep to themselves. In fact, I'm surprised that you got people to open up and tell you their stories. Well, Babs helped me on that. <laughs> she 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 really did. I mean, I think after I befriended Babs, I think people's suspicion of me kind of, you know, I was the guy helping Babs out with the newspapers or whatnot, and she really kind of gave me a stepping stone into the community, um, which is... Yeah, plus nobody ever stays at my house, and I let him camp here, and that, uh, I guess everybody figured, well, if I would let him stay in my house, he must be all right. Oh, you got the tongues of wagon there, huh? <laughs> Jake, I, I want to get our other storytellers to comment here in just a moment, but I have to say there's one description you have of the city which really just grabbed me, and it's this quote, uh, that it's not just a story of man versus the great outdoors, but also of man versus the great indoors. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that, that you're struck by uh, in Whittier, is that the people that make it are people that essentially don't freak out at being inside and kind of contained and a lot of people are not as strong as Babs. I mean, it's kind of a well-known phenomenon of people just cracking it, kind of the claustrophobia, doing them in. And so, you know, the irony of this is, you know, Alaska's, you know, the last frontier, but in this town, to survive, you have to be able to make it indoors. <laughs> Judy, now you grew up in a small town, in a town that's getting smaller and smaller. What similarities do you see between rural Montana and uh, the high-rise community of Whittier, Alaska? I thought it was interesting the uh the similarity between when they started to put gravel on the road uh to my community south of uh, Malta Montana and uh there was a lot of resistance to that because it suddenly struck everyone after they'd argued for a long time to get new roads in there so that they could get out that those roads went two ways and if they could get out that meant that other people could get in and uh suddenly they had to start locking their uh uh, fuel pumps and worrying about kids being able to drive out of town and wreak havoc in the in the rural communities. And Lyle, Lyle Watson, what are your thoughts? I'm intrigued by Whittier because I'm not afraid of being alone. I spend a lot of my time on my own. But being in a small community in a closed, weather-bound condition would give me cabin fever. I think that's a great name for a bar. <laughs> it's I would, if I were there long enough, I'd be in a chronic state of perpetual claustrophobia. It happens to places that Kurt Vonnegut's described as grand falloons, and he meant artificial associations of small numbers of people that is never going to work. This place strikes me as a wonderful retirement home for former submarine workers, long-term space station inhabitants, that sort of thing. What do you think, Babs? Well... It's bad in the wintertime, and when the people get really old, a lot of them have had to move out of here because they're not able to get in and out of their vehicles because there's so much ice. Uh-oh, so what are you going to do as retirement approaches? I'm going to keep all my jobs on the ground floor. <laughs> Babs, you should tell them what your plan is for when you go down at the uh, the burger stand. <laughs> 
Well, I know people keep asking me if I'm going to retire. Now, I'm only 65, so, you know, I'm, I'm not looking at any kind of a break here anytime soon. But probably the best thing that could happen would be if I was down cooking hamburgers in the summertime and I just fell over and died and my sister come down and threw me on the grill and barbecued me and my ashes went out to the ocean and that would be perfect. <laughs> well, Jake Halpern, I want to thank you for your wonderful story. And Babs, thanks for taking this time. Thanks for visiting with me. Still ahead, a story of a boys club in the wild. You're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of marine issues, and the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation. Support also comes from NPR member stations and Bob Williams and Meg Caldwell, honoring NPR's coverage of environmental and natural resource issues, and in support of the NPR President's Council and Paul and Marsha Ginsburg in support of excellence in public radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. It's our holiday special, and this year the theme is community. Authors Jake Halpern, Judy Blunt, and Lyle Watson are here to share some of their stories on that theme. And Lyle Watson, it's your turn now. Your book is a memoir, really, and part of it is about your time in this wild community of boys that you were part of there in South Africa. Um, Could you please share that with us now? Sure. True communities are rare. They can't be forced or legislated into being. They have to grow naturally. I learned this valuable lesson as a child in Africa, coming of age around the end of the Second World War. I was just ten years old then, and running a little wild as a result of a lack of paternal supervision. The fathers of all the boys in my age group had gone off to fight on distant fronts. Some never returned, and those who did were struggling to rebuild professions and trades disrupted by six years of war. So we saw little of them, even when our families and friends took traditional summer holidays down on the remote southern coast of the Cape, on the Cape of Storms. This is where the Indian and Atlantic Oceans meet and create a unique habitat, one with its own idiosyncratic weather and peculiar fauna and flora, a relatively undisturbed sanctuary at the foot of Africa, isolated by mountain ranges and deserts from the turmoil going on in the rest of the continent, a place where leopards and baboons, buffalo, bush pig, and even elephants still lived unfenced. Being there was a privilege, a glimpse of the last of the best of times to be young. We were, however, at an awkward age, too old for toys and too young for girls, a restless generation, ripe for disaster, rescued only by the fact that being bad in those innocent days wasn't a big deal. But our mothers worried about us anyway and wondered what to do until my pioneer grandmother came up with a brilliant solution to the problems of all the families with unruly sons. She commandeered a wagon and team of oxen from a local farmer and did the unthinkable. She loaded up the wagon with a dozen of the most turbulent preteen boys and supplies sufficient for a month. And then she drove herself out onto an old fishing hut on a remote beach, many miles from the nearest road or any kind of habitation. And then she just left us there. We'd heard many things about this ramshackle hideaway. It featured very largely in the stories told by our grandfathers, 
who'd gathered there whenever they could to enjoy oil-male weekends with good brandy and outrageous lies about all the fish they'd ever caught. And now it was ours. The hut was nothing more than a one-room driftwood shack in the dunes. Inside there was a wooden floor with gaps between the planks, wide enough to provide ventilation, and to let beach sand trickle back through. That and a small collection of battered pots and pans. We liked it right away. And when we had unpacked the supplies Omar had provided for us, we discovered that these consisted only of flour, sugar, soap, candles, matches, fishing gear, a few canvas water bags, and a bedroll and one change of clothes for each of us. The adventure began with a long swim at the far end of the Fnara beach, where breaking waves curled up around rocks covered to the high tide line with large black mussels. These proved later to be one of our mainstays, available in all weathers, but by sunset that night we had caught several large chalyun, a fish that also feeds on the mussels, and we'd grilled them over slow-burning coals on the beach, not far from a seasonal spring of cool, fresh water at the base of the cliffs. And that evening we dined and drank entirely off the land and enjoyed a huge surge of pride in this newfound discovery of an ability to support ourselves. Foraging is heady stuff. It changed all of us in fundamental ways. We were very soon aware that what we were doing set us apart from all the other boys who were getting fed and driven about and told what to do. We were drawn together by the very act of breaking the bread which we ourselves had baked. The pride that brought was shared, and in just a matter of days we began to think of ourselves as some sort of tribe. When the Dutch landed at the Cape in 1652 to establish the first farming settlement there, they were met by a ragged group of people. These were small and tawny-coloured people with peppercorn curls of black hair. They wore loincloths, leather cloaks and leggings, and lived there right on the beach, collecting shellfish, crayfish, fur seals, and an occasional beached whale. The colonists called them strandloopers, or beach walkers, and judged from the huge midden mounds of shells that these people had lived in this way for a very long time. The Dutch were also very dismissive of such savages, who scavenged for food and ate it raw and slept out on the sand. But we admired that ingenuity. We were very taken by what we knew of their lifestyle. Beach-walking, we discovered, was an entirely reasonable and honourable profession. And because any half-decent tribe has to have members and a proper name, we voted unanimously to become the new Strandlopers, and we vowed to meet every year for a month. So it was, and in the days that followed we created a simple set of tribal rules. One, no girls. Two, no boys under nine or over twelve. And three, everything that happened at the hut was to be a secret, divulged only on pain of death. We saw that first season out triumphantly. When Omar came back on the appointed day with her ox wagon, she said we looked different. It wasn't just a matter of a lack of grooming. All the families noticed the same thing. Even their most awkward offspring returned from the hut with a new maturity, a different bearing, and every single one of them refused to talk about the experience at all. Even the curiosity of younger brothers was turned aside with the same tight-lipped response. You just wait until you turn ten. In retrospect, our decision to repeat the adventure every year was a vital one. 
It meant that a continuous culture was born, or at least reinvented. We never had to start from the beginning. We were all just strandloopers and proud of it. A different tribe, democratic while it lasted, and happy to make things up as we went along. Our society was never large enough to splinter into factions, or small enough to come to blows, because our group size, by a happy accident, was very close to the optimal size for all such successful foragers throughout history. The distinctions that did emerge amongst us were all based on merit and ability. Petrus, for instance, was born to fish and seemed always to know where and when to go and what kind of catch to expect. Butti, a tough Africana kid, grew up on a large bushveld farm and he automatically took charge of setting snares for rabbits and guinea fowl which he stewed by burying them in clay cocoons beneath our evening campfire. And I, I found myself slipping easily into the role of storyteller and keeper of the old and newly minted Strandlooper traditions. It was my job, when disagreements did arise, to arbitrate by dredging up historical or fictional authority which absolved us all from having to take sides. So the words, this is how it was done, always ruled the day and still leave me with a huge respect for the power of precedent and tradition. Looking back, I'm amazed by how well it worked. Young boys are better known for rebellion than collaboration, but in hindsight, I'm also aware of several factors that did favor cohesion. Life on that beach was easy. There was always something to eat, something different almost every day. The climate was kind, we lived in swimsuits and hats, and we felt very comfortable there as though we fitted into a gap in the ecology, a niche waiting for us to arrive in this powerful and provident place. That is what pulled us together. And now, half a century later, I'm delighted to learn that we were not the first to be touched by this magic. Recent archaeological discoveries on that same Cape Coast have now shown that others, perhaps even our own direct and distant relatives, lived there in much the same way almost a 100,000 years ago. Foraging and fishing, hunting and gathering, finding food easily, they had time for other important things such as playing, dreaming, dancing, singing, all the activities necessary to grow big brains and to produce some of the world's first real art objects. They were safe on that sheltered Cape Coast. They waited there for the right moment to rejoin the march of human history, bursting out and spreading north, out of Africa, into Eurasia, as the first true communicants, Homo sapiens. Lyle, that's such a wonderful story, and it's such a contrast to see this sort of innocent and peaceful community take shape while most of the world, your parents included, are focused on a world war. It was a time capsule, I think. We stepped into it quite unwittingly. Huh. What effect, if any, did the war have on how you decided to run your club, do you think? Oh, we knew nothing of it. When we were on the farm, we didn't have any communications at all. And I only learned about the, the World War and what happened and, and why it happened 15 years later. Tell me a bit about this returning with a different bearing can't exactly call it the wilderness, but the, the wild <laughs> beach there, the wild it's coast. It's something, like, uh, something like what uh, the people who saw the 
the, the first astronauts come back and step out of the, the shuttle, there's that long look, that thousand-mile look. And that's what we had. We'd done something we didn't know about. We didn't know how we had come to do it. We just sort of fell into a pattern, and the pattern was right. And when we found we could look after ourselves, and we didn't need to have someone to cook for us, we didn't need to be told what to do, we worked out what was right to do, and it, it worked so extraordinarily well. Lyle, I wanted to ask you a question, which is, as you were describing uh, the beach, I was thinking of um, Lord of the Flies. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, schoolboys who end up in this place kind of fending for themselves, they're able to, you know, there are some similarities, but of course that goes horribly wrong. And I was just wondering what you thought it was about your community that kept it, in fact, not only from going wrong, but from being so harmonious. It was so important to us, even though we were there for one month at a time through three or four years, the years between nine and, and being a preteen. Uh, we never told anybody about anything we did there, and this, the, nobody ever broke that. It was such a, a sacred thing. And I think that if we had been there nonstop, we might have gone the way of the pigs' heads on stakes. That didn't happen to us. There were wild pigs in the woods, and we liked them because they showed us where water and where the fresh fruit was to be found. <laughs> Judy? Well, I I think it's... Um, my father used to say that boys were like pups. You have to keep them busy or they'll get into trouble. And uh, I try to imagine what might have happened to our community had all of the fathers been absent suddenly, and it would be devastating. Um our mothers and, you know, combined with the children might have kept the farms and ranches going, but it would have been not as sustainable. But we came up being a part of the very real business of living. The jobs that we had were not games. They were not chores. They were parts of the real business of ranching, and uh, we stepped into those roles at a very young age, right about the age that Lyle is talking about, about 10, we started what my father would call making a hand. And there's something about this this uh, maturity that develops when one begins to do what you know in your heart are important jobs, that these are meaningful occupations. Uh, it can grow you beyond your years uh, as far as maturity goes. And I think probably same, some of those same lessons that the fathers weren't there to teach the boys were lessons that the boys taught one another in, in their forming of community. That's absolutely right. And I credit my grandmother with thinking about this, with inventing the idea. It was so outrageous. You know, it couldn't happen now. Parents wouldn't allow a bunch of 10-year-olds oh, no. to be sent off in the wilderness on their own. It's, it's these dangerous times, or perceived to be dangerous times. Lyle, I have to ask you, what happened when you turned 13? I mean, since no one under 9 or over 12 could, could participate in the club, what was your first summer like, being 13 and not being able to go back to this community? Awful. I missed it. But I was then getting to the stage where I was in my last two years of schooling, and I had to work, and I had a girlfriend, and, you know, times had changed. But I, I cherished the memory of it. And Lyle telling a story makes me think of another aspect of home, which is that, and community, that it's fleeting that it sometimes vanishes with time, that we want to hold on to it and keep it close to us, but that sometimes that it it's just gone. Um, 
it reminds me actually the end of uh, Remembrance of Things Past uh, where the main character is going back to Paris after he's been gone for a long time and he says alas the streets are as fleeting as the years hmm. and um, yeah it's just it that's very poignant but um, I, that just invoked that feeling for me writing about it brought a lot of it back to me things I hadn't thought about for 30 years 40 years and I enjoyed that experience well I'd like to thank you all for sharing your stories with us today Lyle Watson is author of Elephantums, Tracking the Elephant. Lyle, thank you very much. I enjoyed it enormously. Judy Blunt is author of her memoir of rural Montana called Breaking Clean. She also teaches at the University of Montana. Judy, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And Jake Halpern is author of Braving Home, Dispatches from the Underwater Town, the Lava Side Inn, and other extreme locales. Jake, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Steve. You've just heard about a band of self-made foragers on the coast of South Africa. Now how would you like a chance to sample some of the same scenery? Earlier this year, we gave away a free safari to East and South Africa to one lucky sweepstakes winner. Now we want to give everyone else another chance, this time including part of South Africa's oceanfront. In May, a group of our listeners will join me on an eco-tour that will include trekking along South Africa's eastern cape in a rugged and beautiful area called the Wild Coast. One of the least developed parts of South Africa, the Wild Coast has been preserved in its natural state. It's a region of hills and waterfalls, rivers, and long white beaches. One of its greatest sights is the beautiful Mtentu Estuary. We'll explore this unique environment on the water, quietly paddling our canoes for a close look at its wildlife. And of course, we'll also journey inland to see some of the big animals, including lions, rhinos, and elephants. There are two ways that you can come aboard. Go to livingonearth.org to find out how you can win a trip for two. You can also reserve a space by buying a ticket right now. For details, visit our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org for another chance at the trip of a lifetime. Our storytelling special was produced by Jennifer Chu, with help from Cynthia Graber and Andy Farnsworth. Special thanks to Michael Marsalik at KUFM, Montana Public Radio. Also thanks to Tristan Klum from KUNM in Albuquerque, New Mexico. If you'd like to make a comment about today's show, call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or write to 20 Holland Street, Suite 408, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And if you'd like more information about any of our storytellers or about the stories presented here, visit our webpage at livingonearth.org. That's www.livingonearth.org. CDs, tapes, and transcripts are $15. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm. Organic yogurt, cultured soy, and smoothies. 10% of their profits are donated to support environmental causes and family farms. Learn more at stonyfield.com. 
Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation, and Toms of Maine, maker of natural care products and creator of the Rivers Awareness Program to preserve the nation's waterways. Information at participating stores or tomsofmaine.com. This is NPR, National Public Radio.